episode six of Mercy House University podcasts class, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, part two. This is Patrick, by the way. And last time in episode five, I uh, covered uh, the first third of the book of Acts. I kind of talked a little bit about why are we talking about the book of Acts in a class that's mostly about the resurrection. And then I covered the material from the ascension to the conversion of Paul. So just some of the historical evidence for thinking that Luke is giving an accurate historical account of some of the things that happened during that time. So today, Austin is going to be uh, continuing our discussion of the book of Acts. Take it away, man. Awesome. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, Hello, everyone. So today we're going to be going through the, the middle section of the book of Acts, so starting with the conversion of Saul, who later becomes Paul, uh, up in this is in Acts chapter nine, up until his final return to Jerusalem and his arrest there around the end of chapter twenty. So this section of the book supplies an account of most of Paul's church planting ministry. Um, we've got three different missionary journeys that he takes during this time up north of Jerusalem into places like modern day Turkey and Greece. There's a huge amount of material here uh, to go through places, names, geography, governments, all of these things. And so we're going to examine some of this evidence, um, but I want to look at two approaches to this. So first, we have a couple different questions to ask. Here we have this account of Paul's, Paul's life and ministry. And so what we should need to ask is, does this account of Paul's life and ministry in the book of Acts, written by Luke, fit with the tes- testimony of Paul in his letters about himself? And this is important because um, the dating and while the dating and authenticity of Acts is a little bit more widely disputed, almost all scholars accept the authenticity of Paul's earliest letters, especially things like letters to Galatians and 1 Corinthians. So I think if we're going to start by looking at the authenticity of Acts, we need to ask, does what Luke tells us about Paul match up with what Paul tells about himself? Um, and if this self-image of Paul presented in the letter to Galatians, for example, uh, matches up with what we see in Acts, then this is good evidence in favor that Acts is also presenting accurate history about Paul, right? So we start with the thing that is less disputed and then use that to, to weigh our evidence in the thing that is more disputed. And I think we'll see um, that this actually lines up very well with Paul's own testimony about himself. So secondly, um, after we do that and we, we say, okay, Um, Paul seems to fit in Acts with what we see in his letters. Uh, Then we have to ask, does this account fit with the the rest of what we know of the region at the time? Do do all the little details line up with what we see going on? As as Luke fills in all the details of Paul's life that Paul doesn't mention, do those things line up? So we're assuming that Luke wrote Acts. Yes. There's continuity in the style and authorship, also the introduction in both of those books. Uh, that Luke is now writing this second part, which is Luke of Acts. Yeah. So if I mention Luke as an author, I'm talking about the book of Acts. And then when I talk about Paul as an author, I'm talking about his epistles. So I'm going to handle each of these questions one at a time. And you're welcome to, to follow along if you uh, are somewhere where you can do that. So the first question is, does Luke's account of Paul fit with the picture of Paul that's presented in these earlier dated letters? Uh, And so the two main types of evidence we're looking at here are multiple attestation. So just evidence from another source that that matches up, but also unintended coincidences. So these will be things that uh, show up in Paul's letters and in Acts that seem to confirm one another, but don't seem to be directly drawn from one another, right? There'll be be suggestions that Luke isn't just copying things that Paul has said or using Paul as a source. He's actually gotten some of this information elsewhere, um, and we see those stories lining up, even though there isn't a direct dependency. So that's the importance of those unintended coincidences. Okay, so jumping into this, uh, so we're going to start right after Paul's conversion uh, in chapter 9. So in 926, uh, we have this multiple attestation with the book of Galatians, where Paul, uh, Luke tells us that Paul takes a trip to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. And this is independently attested to in uh, the Pauline letter to the Galatians, as well as his departure from there. So in Galatians 1, uh, verse 18, it says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, who is Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. 
Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. So we have this uh, Paul telling us in Galatians that he went up to Jerusalem and then went from there to Syria. And we have this as well in Acts chapter 9. Moving down a little bit, so we're jumping here to Acts chapter 13. I've got a couple of undesigned coincidences, um, which is, like I said, particularly interesting. And as I'll, I'll bring out as this goes along, that one could argue that Luke is just taking the information from Paul and sort of creating this history. Right? He's, he's writing a, a cool origin story for Paul or something like that. So when we have things like undesigned coincidences, what we see are these details that seem to line up between the epistles and Luke's writing in Acts, but don't seem like Luke is actually relying on the epistles to get those details. So one of them we have here is uh, also in chapter 13. Uh, in verse 13, we have a connection here between this verse and 2 Timothy. Um, 2 Timothy is more disputed as far as Pauline authorship. The, a conservative tr- position would be that, that this was written to Timothy from Rome, uh, in prison in Rome in around 66, 67, Since 80. That's what it says. Yeah. And <laughs> so, I mean, so. the, the reason that skeptics uh, say maybe it's not Paul is because of differences in style, right? But yeah. then I think the conservative response is that, well, he was a lot older and you might expect somebody's style or some of the imagery they use or something like that to develop over the course of a career of well, and also, and writing. And also a, a common, like from what I've seen, a common conservative response is that we know that Paul uh, often dictated his letters. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if he's got different people mm-hmm. writing on his behalf at different times, they might you know choose to word things a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, since this is an undesigned coincidence, um, one of the things that uh, the McGrews emphasize is that undesigned coincidence counts in favor of all of the documents involved. So this is actually evidence for, for Pauline the, authorship. Uh, the Pauline authorship. Yeah. Uh, of not, Second Timothy. Yeah. Not just, not just evidence for actions. Yeah. It goes both ways. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Acts chapter 13 right now is we're in Paul's first missionary journey. So approximate dating is between 47 and 48 AD. And Paul goes to a number of different places at that time. He goes to Cyprus, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So those are some of the places Paul goes during this time. And this is between Acts chapter 13 and 14. So just to give you some context, because it'll make sense of this undesigned coincidence right here, where <clears throat> here Paul's describing his suffering in the towns of Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. So later... Uh, in chapter 16, we learn that Timothy actually lived in Lystra. So that's not brought up here in chapter 13 or 14, but we do find that out later. So presumably Timothy was in Lystra at the time that Paul was there, in the first time he was there uh, on this first missionary journey, which would explain how Paul, or sorry, how Timothy would have known about Paul's sufferings in these three cities which Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, you know of my sufferings that I experienced in these places. Well, how does Timothy know about them? Uh, I mean, sure, Paul could have told him, but it seems to suggest that Timothy has more of an intimate knowledge, right? He, he sort of experienced it or watched it or, you know, there's a familiarity. Mm-hmm. And that would make sense if Timothy happened to be from Lystra and it was one of the places where Paul is persecuted at this time on this journey. So, there's a cool connection here between 2 Timothy, Acts chapter 13. Um, another one with 2 Timothy, uh, later in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul, um, we see here again using this uh, metaphor of running a race. So he uses this in chapter 13 of Acts in verse 25, uh, but also again in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 24. So we see him using this metaphor multiple times, so both in, his, in the epistles, but also uh, in the book of Acts. So it, it, it fits what we know of Paul's teaching, the way that he shares the gospel, his style that he uses, right? He's using these metaphors. He's appealing to common Greek practices, which are these games that people would partake in. So, um, which weren't very, that wasn't a Palestinian practice, right? People didn't engage in those kind of games. So it's, uh, it's very fitting to this specific Greek context that he's teaching in. And proclaiming the gospel in, so it, it's it's an undesigned coincidence in that 
it's not clear that that Luke would have read this in Second Timothy and then, oh, I'm going to make Paul say this somewhere else, right? It's not that kind of direct quotation or something. But there seems to be this continuity of, of teaching style going on. A couple more things here from the first missionary journey. Uh, we've got a multiple attestation. So this is just the same, same details or same facts being um, told in two different sections. So in chapter 14, verse 19 of Acts, we find that Paul is stoned. Um, but yeah, 14, 19. So it says Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. So we get this uh, also in the second epistle to the Corinthians. So he tells us that he had had lots of things happen to him and go wrong. <laughs> and this is one of the things in this long list. And I'm sure these will come up again as we go through Acts as he recounts these. But he tells us in 2 Corinthians uh, eleven twenty five, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. But here we have the, the pelting with stones, right? So Paul tells us I was pelted with stones. Here we have the accounting of him being pelted with stones. So specific factual event or told as a historical event, um, both attested to in 2 Corinthians and here in Acts. All right. So that's Paul's first missionary journey, right? So he went to these uh, five or so different places. We've got Acts. We've got several chapters in Acts here. And now he's going back on his second missionary journey. So we have the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. This is 49, uh, around 49 AD. And now Paul sets off on a second missionary journey. So this is around, somewhere around 50 AD uh, and over the course of several years. And now during the second missionary journey, um, Paul ends up in Corinth. And this is from where he writes the, the Thessalonians. So, And in the second trip, he goes to a whole bunch of places, uh, including Galatia, Philippi, um, Thessaloniki, Athens, Corinth, Berea. So a bunch of places. So this will take us through Acts chapter 18. Here we have another undesigned coincidence between 2 Timothy, uh, both chapter 1, uh, verse 5, and chapter 3, 14 to 15. And here we have uh, Paul telling us that Timothy's mother is Jewish and his father is Greek. Uh, that's, that's what we're told here in Acts. So in Acts chapter 16, we find out that Timothy has this mixed heritage. So Jewish mother, Greek father. Uh, this explains why Timothy is not circumcised, and Paul takes him to actually circumcises him. Uh, so because uh, that would usually be something on behalf of his father. And we find out in 2 Timothy that Timothy inherited his faith from his mother and his grandmother. And so he's got this matrilineal uh, faith heritage here, but then he has his Greek heritage from his father. So we have this background of who Timothy is that seems to be connecting between Acts and 2 Timothy. But Luke doesn't bring this out, right? He doesn't, he doesn't tell us anything about Luke's mother or grandmother. He doesn't mention them by name, the way that Paul does in 2 Timothy. So there's clearly a connection here and a, a continuity, but not a clear dependency. So a couple of verses later here in verse, six, third, uh, verse 3, we have an undesigned coincidence between Acts 16 and 17. Uh, so we've got some stuff here between things in Acts, but also in Paul's epistles to Philippians. So in Acts, we, they seem to, it seems to imply that Timothy was with Paul when he goes to Philippi. So he passes through Philippi and takes Timothy with him. And we have Paul picking up Timothy in 16.3 here in, at Lystra. So we mentioned earlier, Timothy was hanging out in Lystra. That's why he would have known about Paul's suffering there. And here, Paul is meeting him in Lystra and then taking him with him on the rest of his journey. And we see that Paul is still, or Timothy is still with Paul in Thessaloniki, Thessalonica in 17. Um, so presumably, Timothy is also with him in the in-between time. And then at this time, he goes through Philippi uh, and is there for a while. So this explains how the Philippians would have known Timothy which Paul seems to suggest to them in Philippians chapter 2, uh, 22. In uh, chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul says, starting in 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, 
He has served with me in the gospel. Um, I hope, therefore, to go or to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly, shortly I myself will come also. So he's saying, you know, Timothy, he's, he's proven his worth to you, right? So he's not just like you've heard about him, but you, you've spent time with him. You're familiar with him. But Paul doesn't mention that specifically, right, that he spent time with them. But in Acts, we have this suggestion that, that Timothy is with Paul, both in Lystra and in Thessalonica, on either end, sort of bookending this trip to Philippi. So the obvious assumption, though it's not stated, is that Timothy also is with Paul in Philippi. Mm-hmm. As an aside, I feel like that as a son with a father line is another, I feel like that might count as an undesigned coincidence, uh, knowing that Timothy's father did not have the faith of his mother and grandmother. It sounds like Paul is sort of saying that he is spiritually fathering Timothy and that, you know, this community that knows Timothy and Paul knows that about their relationship. So we haven't mentioned this author yet, but he deserves to be mentioned. So the guy who actually invented the argument from undesigned coincidences was Mm -hmm. William Paley, the same guy who who came up with the watchmaker design argument. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this book called Horai Polonai in 1750. And that book was all about the undesigned coincidences between Acts and the Pauline epistles. And it is one of my favorite books of all time. That's a highly recommended. Very early response to form criticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. It is it is really, really excellent book. Um, and then Lydia McGrew's book on undesigned coincidences is, is was like intended as, in a way, a kind of uh, contemporary update of that old mm. argument. Though she also covers the Gospels, which is cool. Um, and the other like older authors did as well, but not Paley himself. So continuing in chapter 16, so we're still Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, So Paul stays in Philippi here in chapter 16. He's hanging out with the Philippians. During this time, he would have developed some relations with them, some friendships that would be uh, lifelong friendships. And he mentions this in Philippians chapter 1. Yeah, he says, I thank God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So he's sort of remembering this fondly, this time he had with them uh, and these friendships that have continued up until this present day. And to get a picture of this throughout Philippians with the Philippian jailer uh, and his time there in Philippi. Right. Uh, okay, we're going to jump to chapter 18. So we're going to skip over Thessalonians and Berea and Athens. And I'll, I'll come back to some of this when I look at uh, some of the geographic historical evidence. Uh, but we're going to finish up here with our undesigned coincidences and multiple attestations. So chapter 18, we got Paul in Corinth now. And Paul here meets Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, and this <clears throat> we find uh, to have mul- to be multiply attested to 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 16. So here he mentions them greeting the Corinthians. So he says, hey, uh, Achilla and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. So this suggests, again, this personal relationship, this friendship with the Corinthians. Uh, so in the 1 Corinthians, which is an important early and undisputed epistle by Paul, we have him talking about Priscilla and Aquila having this intimate relationship with the Corinthians and have that told to us here in Acts chapter 18. All right. A couple of verses down now, Acts chapter five, or sorry, 18, <laughs> chapter 18, verse five, Silas and Timothy uh, end up are in Macedonia and says he was reviled. They shook their garments at him and things didn't go super well. But here we have a connection between 2 Corinthians, so Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11. And this undesigned coincidence um, is, is based on, we could, we could translate um, Acts chapter 18, 5, and show that Paul is devoting his efforts to evangelism after Timothy and Silas arrive. So he's, he's waiting for them to show up in order to begin evangelizing. 
And the passage in Corinthians reveals that Silas and Timothy brought funds with them, which explains why Paul suddenly was able to make this shift. So 2 Corinthians 11 says, When I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. So it's a really interesting connection because we know from other places that Paul was, was tent making, right? So he had this skill that he had learned and he was doing this to provide for himself. So, you know, Paul isn't able to devote his full time to teaching the gospel because he has to have somewhere to eat and live and take care of himself. And if he doesn't know a bunch of people in Corinth yet, he doesn't have a way of doing that. Nobody's providing for him. He doesn't have a place to stay, all that kind of stuff. So he's working and able to do, in order to do this. But here in verse 5, Silas and Timothy show up, and they have funds with him from the other churches, um, maybe Antioch or Jerusalem, bringing funds to support this outreach. And so now Paul can actually devote his time to teaching the gospel and doesn't have to spend all of his time working to eat. So it's pretty cool. It's, just, it's a subtle connection here um, between 2 Corinthians and Acts, but it, it explains this shift that's going on that, that Luke just kind of mention, mentions in passing. Mm-hmm. Okay, third missionary journey. All right. Uh, so now we are uh, around 54, uh, well, mid, let's say mid-50s AD. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, variation on dating here, but somewhere between like 53 and 58 AD. And here we have Paul writing to the Corinthians from Ephesus and from Macedonia, uh, and this is taking us through chapter 20. So, okay. So what are some things going on here in 18 through 20? Some of the places Paul's going and what he's doing. So we've got some connections here with some other people. Um, first one is got an undesigned coincidence in 1819. So it says they came to Ephesus. He left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And this is a reference to Priscilla and Aquila. Well, there's an undesigned coincidence here with 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, <clears throat> because uh, this fits with the implication of 1 Corinthians that Paul is with them when he's writing this letter. So in 1 Corinthians, are written when Paul is returned to Ephesus uh, in Acts 19, Priscilla and Aquila were apparently still there. So we've got here in chapter 18, Paul mentions being uh, with Priscilla and Aquila and leaving them in Ephesus. Okay, so he leaves them in Ephesus. Then he goes on, comes back to Ephesus, or Ephesus around Acts 19. And this is when he writes the letter to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, as we mentioned, actually as an earlier piece of evidence uh, back at the beginning of chapter 18, is he says, Priscilla and Achilla greet you warmly. So the assumption is that they're present with him as he's writing this letter. Um, and it seems to be from Acts here that this is because Paul left them in Ephesus. So it's one of those things that uh, is an undesigned coincidence because it just seems to be mentioned in passing that they happen to be left in Ephesus. It doesn't tell us again specifically that they're there later in chapter 19. There's no, there's no explicit mention of them when Paul is presumed to be writing 1 Corinthians. But he mentions them in the letter, and so this assumes that they are still present. So we have this connection about Priscilla and Achilla being there in Ephesus over a period of time from these different sources that don't seem to be uh, dependent on each other. Okay, 18. So in 1824, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Moving on to 18, verse 27. Uh, it says, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And we have an undesigned coincidence here with 2 Corinthians 3, because in the second epistle to Corinthians, Paul alludes to uh, Apollos when he came to Achaia and Corinth. Also in 1 Corinthians he mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in chapter 4 that there were some in the church who followed Apollos specifically. So they sort of said, you know, we follow Apollos as opposed to Paul or something like that. But then in verse 3, he uses this agriculture metaphor to describe how Apollos followed up Paul's original planting in Corinth. So he says, I, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it. God's making it grow. So he's telling us about Apollos' ministry 
And just kind of mentioning in passing that Paulus was there, also working in Corinth. Um, and Luke tells us about that here in Acts chapter 18. Okay, and one last little detail here about uh, undesigned coincidences is between uh, verse 20, chapter, or sorry, chapter 20, verse 3. It says that Paul came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 16, 6, he says, Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even stay the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. So this would make sense of the three months that Paul goes to stay in Greece. So he stays in Greece for three months, Luke tells us, just in passing on this trip from Macedonia. And he tells the first Corinthian, in first Corinthians, he tells the, the Corinthian church, hey, I'm going to come stay with you for the whole winter. Well, that seems to fit from what we know of the season, about three months, uh, which seems to be explaining this time that Paul spent in Corinth. Okay, so that was a lot uh, of information <laughs> and a lot of things going on here between Paul's letters and uh, the book of Acts, and partially just because there's just so much there's so much data that we have to work with, right? Paul's written all of these letters, and throughout those letters, he mentions just in passing things about his trips, things that are going on, conversations he's previously had, people that he's been involved with, and a lot of it is mentioned as kind of peripheral details. Um, and we have Luke who's sort of giving us a fuller story, right? He's telling us all of the little things that happened in between and who Paul talked to and where he went. And so he's kind of filling out all those details. But, you know, if you were especially skeptical, you could say, well, sure. Paul's letters, we know were circulating. They're, they're very early. Luke, whoever this Luke guy is, he's reading these letters and saying, Hey, Paul's pretty important. You know what we need? We need a good origin story for Paul. Right, we need people to know where where did Paul come from. That we need to know that he's an authoritative source, right? Like, how do we know Paul is somebody should be trusted? So he's telling us about who Paul is and where he came from, and maybe he's taking some of the details from Paul's letters, and then he's just sort of filling it all in, right? He's like, oh, Paul mentioned going to this place, so I'll, I'll add in some things that happened there. And people like Bar Ehrman will, will argue that Acts has the feel and style of like a classic travel novel, right? You, you go back to like the Iliad or something like that, or the Odyssey right? In the Odyssey you've got sailing from one place to another and shipwrecks and meeting f- fascinating people and crazy religious events. And right, you've got this kind of fun, exotic travel novel basically. And there are some ways in which Acts has a similar reading. Paul's traveling all over the place. He's meeting interesting people. He's getting attacked and escaping. And there's some adventure and mystery in there. Uh, He has a shipwreck, which we'll talk about later. So, you know, you could see maybe this was some guy named Luke making up this cool, legendary travel story for this guy, Paul, and filling in some of the details. So... Let's look at some of those other details and see, do those fit with someone just making up historical details about this guy, Paul? Or do we see that all those little filled in details actually fit the, what we know of the geography at the time, the, the politics of the time, the cultures of the time, in a way that wouldn't make sense for somebody making up these details, right? That they actually got all of these little things right. So this is this is question two. Do they, do Luke does Luke's account of Paul's journeys match the historical data of Asia Minor in the mid first century? So now we're shifting from multiple attestation, undesigned coincidence as our primary form of evidence to looking at the things we know from external sources about that time and place. Okay, so let's go back to Acts thirteen and fourteen. So we got <laughs> we got Paul's mission, first missionary journey. So we've got some cool things with Paul's travel details here. And in verses uh, 4 and 5 of 13, uh, it says that, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, and, and so on. So there are two ports. There are two main ports along this area, along the coast, that are mentioned. And one of them 
is a large port. So when Paul's coming from Cyprus, he would go to Perga. That's the large port for open sea vessels. And then we have a smaller port in Italia that boats who are going up and down the coast. So the coast along the eastern Mediterranean there, if you're sailing up along uh, Palestine and up into Greece and Turkey, well, Turkey and then Greece, um, you'd go along the shore and you'd come into Italia, right? So you've got kind of a small port for small coastal boats, and then you've got this large port. And what it seems to suggest from what Luke tells us about this journey is that this fits uh, these two ports. So when Paul is coming from Cyprus, he sails into this port at Perga, and later we'll see him sailing along the coast. Uh, And in this case, we see him coming uh, from Italia. Okay. In 13.7, Luke tells us that uh, there was a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So we've got a mention of a proconsul, and this implies that Cyprus was a proconsular province, so the kind of province that would actually have a proconsul. So this fits a particular knowledge of the Roman governmental structure in the Roman Empire. Uh, but furthermore, that this proconsul of this province happened to reside in Paphos. And we know from history that both of these things are correct. So that Cyprus was the kind of province of Rome that had a proconsul. Uh, and that the residency or the, the primary residency for this proconsul was in Paphos. So good knowledge of local politics. Okay. Jumping down a little bit to chapter 14. Here we have this really interesting little mention by, by Luke. It's quite, uh, quite minor, but, uh, in 1411, Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra and we mentioned earlier, right? This is where Paul probably first, uh, would have, uh, Timothy would have first become aware of Paul says that they uh, made somebody well. He says, stand upright on your feet, sprang up, began walking. And then in verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. It's interesting, um, because it's just this really passing mention that they're not actually speaking in Greek here, right? which the rest of you know the New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, they're traveling through a region that is would be primarily Greek-speaking. Most people in Rome... The Roman Empire at this point would have had Greek as the most common language. But Luke mentioned in the passing that they're speaking their local native language instead. So this is, this is just an unusual fact. Um, but it actually fits what we know of this region at the time, is that they would have preferred their own native language hmm. instead of speaking in Greek. So a little passing detail, but fits what we know of Lystra. Also in this passage, we have in the next verse that these men have come down in the likeness of gods. And verse 12 says, Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. I mean, it seems like kind of a bummer for Paul, but <laughs> Zeus is clearly the preferred, <laughs> the preferred God in this, in this case. Uh, uh, so the priest of Zeus, whose temples at the entrance to the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Um, this is kind of a odd thing, right? Like these two guys show up, they do something cool, but the immediate assumption is, it must be Zeus and Hermes, right? Like these must be gods. So the identification here, and this is suggested by, by Hemer and, and House and McGrew and a few others, that this identification of Paul and Barnabas with um, Zeus and Hermes, or the, the Roman equivalents of Mercury and Jupiter, actually reflects the local beliefs here. So both uh, Jupiter, Zeus, and Mercury, uh, Hermes, were deities worshipped specifically in Lystra. So archaeologists have found a 3rd century altar inscribed with their names near the city. Also, local legend claimed that precisely this pair of deities had visited Lystra once before, and the people of Lystra had rejected them, and thereby incurring their wrath. So, their behavior on this occasion may reflect an effort to avoid repeating such a debacle. So, you know, imagine you had this story that these gods showed up, you weren't super hospitable towards them, and they you know, Zeus threw down some lightning bolts or something. That's a bad day. So now you've got two more, two more guys showing up. 
You're not quite sure what Zeus and, Her- and Hermes are supposed to look like. Do you have a social practice of <laughs> looking for Zeus's and Hermes wherever they might show you? <laughs> yeah. We've got two guys doing cool things. <laughs> oh, no, it's Zeus and Hermes again. Shoot. <laughs> we got it. Quick, grab the ox. <laughs> grab the ox. <laughs> Don't screw it up this time. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh and then lastly, uh, these scholars mentioned that in so 15 and 17, the next next part of the passage says uh, they they cry out, or Paul, Paul and Barnabas cry out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Uh, And just a suggestion here is that this suits uh, kind of the context of the local religious beliefs about the role of the gods. Mm -hmm. The gods provide the harvest and food, and and these aren't uncommon things. But, um, you know, different Greek cities had different gods that had different primary things they provided. Um, And in this case, we have... Zeus and Hermes providing um, fruitful seasons, rain from heaven, right? Zeus is sort of god of, of thunder and heaven and that kind of thing. So this fits the, the context in Lystra. Cool. Okay. Enough of Lystra. Jumping down, chapter 15. We got back in Jerusalem. So we haven't really mentioned a whole lot about Jerusalem yet at this point, or Paul being in Jerusalem. But um, this little thing we, we know here actually from some direct evidence from external evidence from Josephus. So in 1513, it says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. This is talking about James, the the brother of Jesus. This uh, James is actually mentioned also by Josephus. So of course he's attested to in the gospels and other places. Um, But Josephus tells us about James being martyred here in Jerusalem. So in uh, Antiquities, he says that Ananias assembled the Sanhedrin of the judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, so the Messiah, whose name was James and some others, some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. Okay, secondary missionary journey. Paul, again, is now traveling around, and he's spending some time at Ephesus. And just a couple things here. Uh, in 16.8, we have a mention of Paul. It says, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And this is a really minor detail. But the first century version of the name Troas, which is used here, uh, didn't actually persist through the second century. So... This is something suggested by, by Hemer. The dative form of that is troada, troada, something like that. Um, so the suggestion is that, that that form of the word was no longer used to, to call that city. It was, it was called something else by the time we get to the second century. So if Luke is making this up later, especially at, you know into the second century or something like that, and isn't relying on specific sources from this time period, there's no reason he would get this name right. I mean, I guess an example would be uh, Istanbul in Constantinople. So if you were referring to it as Constantinople, that would be that's the earlier name. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you'd at least have to know that it was once called that. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if I here as an American today was making up a story about some city in the Middle East and I write something about Istanbul, it doesn't show that I know that it wasn't called Istanbul previously. Whereas if I say Constantinople, it means that I at least have the knowledge that at one point the city was called something else, and that fits with what we know historically. Okay, staying in 16 here, we've got 1619. Uh, when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, so this is talking about them casting out uh, a spirit from slave girl, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace for the rulers, when they brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Uh, and they were beaten and then thrown into prison. So, <clears throat> interestingly, it says, Though a second century, uh, McRae makes this point, Though a second century forum dominates the archaeological scene in Philippi today. So if we were to go look at the, the evidence that we've dug up in Philippi, uh, you'd see that there was this, this 
big forum that was built in the second century. But that forum actually replaced an earlier and larger one, which featured this tribunal in which Paul and Silas are seem to be described about being before the magistrates here in 1619. So the suggestion is that if Luke was writing this in the second century and describing this place that they're being uh, tri- tribunaled at, uh, he'd be describing this second century um, forum. But he seems to be describing the first century one that we actually know archaeologically existed earlier at that time. So just a little... Uh, architectural details that, that fit what we know from the uh, archaeology. Uh, I'm going to jump down to some other things. So Paul in 17.6 is talking about the ruling authorities. So he's in uh, Thessalonica. says that the Jews were jealous take, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. Uh, who have turned the world upside down come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they'd taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, so we've got a few different things around here. We've got some descriptions of the authorities, which in the Greek here are called polytarchs. So this is actually an a correct term for the authorities specifically used here in Thessalonica. That's important because there were different terms used in other places. So in Philippi, Athens, Corinth, Malta, for example, um, there were other terms used for the authorities. So again, if you're not, you have to be pretty familiar with specifically the city to, <laughs> to know that <laughs> what the government structure was like at the time and to specifically even use the terminology at the time and place. Right? That's not a detail that somebody not in that specific region would know. They'd actually most likely get it wrong because they'd be used to a different terminology. So that's pretty cool. Some sc- so scholars actually used to challenge Luke's use of this term, like arguing that he was just wrong because we'd never heard this term anywhere else, so that he must be making it up. But we actually have 32 inscriptions attesting to this term have been discovered since then, and more than half of them are specifically from this city. The term being polytarch? Polytarchs. Great. So basically, at one point, at one point certain critics were saying... the only evidence for yeah, there being yeah. polytarchs. And so people were saying, oh, he made it up. And then we found 32 <laughs> inscriptions back in Luke. <laughs> that's cool. So it's, yeah, really, really good. Good evidence for Luke's, Luke as a historian, yeah. right? That he's using the correct terminology here. These are just some indirect evidence things that I'll just mention really briefly. So when Paul addressed the Areopagus in Athens, um, he quotes several different Greek writers, poets. So in 1728, he says, we're also his offspring. This is uh, presumably a quote from Aratus, the Stoic poet, who was actually from near Tarsus, where Paul lived. So that sort of fits something Paul might be familiar with, um, but also something his hearers might be familiar with. So he's referencing uh, some Hellenic poetry. And then we have also in that same passage, Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And this is in a quote from Epimenides, the Cretan, uh, who was um, actually associated with altars to unknown gods, which is what Paul's talking about here in Areopagus. So uh, this fits with the Athenian religious tradition. Like he's actually quoting something that's relevant to the situation. Uh, we actually find the same quotation in the letter to Titus, uh, which is traditionally attested to Paul. That's some controversy there uh, in the pastoral epistles uh, as far as Titus being a genuine Pauline epistle. But this is one of those un- undesigned coincidences that both seem to be in favor of Acts because it really fits the historical context really well. Uh, but also then seems to give some evidence in favor of Titus that Paul clearly ha- knows this specific quote and this knowledge, uh, and he's bringing it up again in this epistle. Um, lastly, we look at their response, and we see that it says that mock, um, mocking would have been a, a credible reaction from the Athenians, which we don't necessarily see people responding that way in other places. Right, that we don't see a lot of people responding to resurrection in quite the same way to that claim. But 
<clears throat> according to, to Hemer makes this, this case that not even Zeus uh, was believed to be capable of resurrecting the dead. Right, this was a, a very unusual and strong claim to make, and we have several different sort of philosophy camps that are present responding to him, who seem to think this is a ridiculous claim for him to make, and that fits the beliefs philosophically at the time. All right, so one one last bit of historical evidence. Uh, I think we've generally seen that Luke gets his details correct, which is great. Uh, is the third missionary journey in chapter 19, uh, in verse 13. We know that Jews uh, engaged in the kind of superstitious and magic practices that we see in Asia Minor. So, and this is a, a quote from Blomberg, uh, and quoting uh, Eckhart Schnabel here as well. It says, in fact, uh, Ephesus was known as a center for ancient magic, similar to what we would call the occult today. Hundreds of magical papyri from a slightly later date have been preserved or recovered, presenting spells, incantations, involving countless deities with all kinds of nonsense words, as far as we know. <laughs> Little wonder, this was a site for the first Christian book uh, or scroll burning ceremony. So that's what we see in verse 19. People are bringing their magic books to be burned after their conversion to Christianity. Uh, a practice known from rulers who ordered books to be burned in order to repudiate their content regarded as offensive, seditious, or dangerous. So at one level, this fits with not an unusual thing. If you have a offensive writings, it wasn't that uncommon for someone to, to command a book burning. Let's get rid of these offensive writings. Um, so that practice isn't, isn't that unusual. But also the fact that uh, the practice of magic was really common in Ephesus fits everything else we know from the archaeological data that we have. Okay, <clears throat> so in summation of what we looked at today, I think the overwhelming evidence... And this honestly was only a, a, per, a percentage of <laughs> what I, yeah, I, I, I picked and, and chose through some of the details. So yeah. this is even me cherry picking <clears throat> of the weight of evidence that we have. Mm -hmm. So there's just this massive amount of evidence. And it's worth, I think it might be worth mentioning, like a couple of places where you decided not to focus mm -hmm. wisely, um, where there's <laughs> a ton of evidence. So there's just still so much more out there is... Um, when Paul's at Athens, you did a couple of things mm -hmm. from that, but there's a ton more. And also the riot at Ephesus in chapter 19, mm -hmm. which we didn't really cover at all, but there's a ton of evidence there. Um, so, yeah, we didn't even come close <laughs> to covering everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what you can take away from this <laughs> is that Luke presents us a picture of Paul, his, his, a good portion of his life, um, about a... a 20 to 30 year, almost 30 year period of his life that we just covered, uh, as well as these journeys of planting these early churches around Asia Minor. And what we see is this picture presented by Luke in the book of Acts fits very well with Paul's own presentation of himself throughout the epistles, which, again, we know are pretty much uncontested historically as being genuinely written by Paul and being historically accurate. And they're very early. So this is just really good evidence in favor that Luke uh, is getting the details right about Paul. But we also have this further evidence that all these little details that he fills in that aren't in Paul, right, that Paul doesn't mention in his letters, that, that Luke tells us about in the book of Acts, fit all the historical details really well. So the geography, the politics, the judicial system, the culture, I mean, just all of these things seem to line up really well with what we know archaeologically, historically, and so what that tells us overall is that Luke is a, is a good historian, right? He's, a, he's an, a reliable historian. If he were to get, you know, maybe he'd get the gist right and generally the things that Paul, Paul said and did. But if he started getting a lot of these little details wrong, where he went or what the people would have said or what language they would have spoken. Were there, there any polytarchs there? How many polytarchs <laughs> were present? Right? We, start, we start to doubt the rest of his story. And maybe we would take the things corresponding with Paul and say, okay, he, maybe he gets those things right because Paul is saying those things. But the rest of the stuff he said, we can't really trust that. But I think overwhelmingly we can see that, that Luke is a reliable historian, um, which suggests that the rest of the book of Acts is reliable history. And that brings us back to part of the reason why we're looking at the book of Acts is that ultimately it's a story of what happened as a result of this 
massive event, right? This great catalyst happened that resulted in all these missionary journeys, all these transformed lives, this huge movement throughout the, the Eastern Mediterranean at this time. And Luke tells us it's the resurrection. <laughs> this is the event that caused all these things to happen. So if we can trust the rest of Luke, his details and all of this history, then that's really good evidence that we should also trust Luke's telling us about the resurrection as the catalyst for this. Yeah, I think that was one of the big takeaways from for me from this today was uh, how much Paul went through. Like mm-hmm. he did, he traveled so much, and like travel is hard enough in itself. But then he's traveling around, and he's being beaten with rods and pelted with stones, and put in prison and uh, ridiculed, and you know, like man, did that guy just go through suffering after suffering and just keep on charging into a new, like just new places where he knew he was going to suffer some more. Uh, and Barnabas and Timothy and uh, Silas and all these people just went suffering with him. And that just speaks to this point that you're talking about, that this record of suffering is a record of these people who had the conviction of the truth of the resurrection and how life-changing it was for them. All right, that's all we have for today. And thank you once again for joining us on the Mercy House University podcast. And if you have any questions for us, please don't hesitate to email. Uh, We have the email address at mercyhouseu at gmail.com. That's mercyhouse, the letter U, at gmail.com. And if you have any questions, we'll be happy to email you back and even address them here on the podcast. Until next time.